Welcome to the High Fidelity Podcast. I am your host, Bridget Conry, coming to you from the dialed studio at Hula on the shores of beautiful Lake Champlain in Burlington, Vermont. In this episode, we speak with Martin Lee, the co-founder and director of Project CBD, the original and longest-running online resource for information about both CBD and medical cannabis. Last month, Project CBD launched its new website, developed in collaboration with Blue Dream, Gondrepreneur's in-house creative agency. We talked to Martin about the history of Project CBD, their latest topics of interest, and where they're headed in their new partnership with Blue Dream. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I can't believe that I'm saying this already, but this is the last episode in season two. Thank you so much for joining us along the way. We'll be taking a little break before we launch season three in order to focus on opening our cannabis retail store in Burlington. Now is the perfect time to go back and listen to any previous episodes you may have missed. To find out more about our upcoming store and to keep in touch, Sign up for our newsletter at HiFiVT.com. That's H-I-F-I-V-T.com. Or check out the show notes wherever you listen. We provided a link. We look forward to meeting you there. Before we go, we're ending Season 2 on a high note in our conversation with longtime cannabis advocate Martin Lee. Martin is the co-founder and director of Project CBD a nonprofit educational platform that focuses on cannabis science and therapeutics. He is the author of several books, including Smoke Signals, A Social History of Marijuana, Medical, Recreational, and Scientific, as well as The Essential Guide to CBD, published by Reader's Digest in 2021. He co-authored Acid Dreams, The Complete Social History of LSD, The CIA, The 60s, and Beyond. In addition to these books, his writing has appeared in many publications, including the Washington Post, the LA Times, Rolling Stone, and The Nation, to name just a few. He is the winner of the American Botanical Council's James A. Duke Award for Excellence in Botanical Literature and a recipient of the Emerald Cup's Lifetime Achievement Award. Martin is also co-founder of the media watch group FAIR, which stands for Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. We first met Martin back in September of 2013, the year that we opened Champlain Valley Dispensary, Vermont's first licensed medical cannabis dispensary. After learning of Project CBD, we invited him to speak in Vermont about CBD and medical cannabis to our staff, registered patients, medical professionals, and the general public. Martin graciously accepted and kicked off what became the first in a series of educational events we produced in our community over the next several years. This event was the beginning of both a long-standing professional relationship and a personal friendship. Since then, we have hosted Martin in Vermont for a second event in 2016. We make it a point to share a meal together whenever we find ourselves at the same medical cannabis conferences, 
and we've stayed in touch over the years to simply talk shop. Through it all, projectcbd.org has remained our go-to resource for trusted information regarding cannabis science, plant medicine, psychedelics, and drug policy. We highly recommend it for anyone interested in these topics, whether you're just starting out or looking to deepen your knowledge. And we are super excited that Martin agreed to talk with us on the podcast about the recent redesign of their website and their new partnership with the folks behind Gondrepreneur. So without further ado, we bring you Martin Lee of Project CBD. So Martin Lee, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Happy to be with you. Yeah, we're actually delighted to have you with us. And today we're going to talk about your nonprofit, the educational platform that is Project CBD. We're going to go into a little bit of the history of that and then talk about your new website and hear what's coming up for the organization. But I hope that you'll indulge me for a minute before we kind of dive in and ask you some questions. Just to give you some gratitude, everybody at High Fidelity is really grateful for what Project CBD has been doing for, what, almost 14 years now. It's our go-to source of trusted information for all things cannabis. And, you know, not only do we go to it, you know, when we're searching for important topics, whether it's the latest medical research or how to navigate products, you know, we start there. And your site always brings us to other places, too, that we can trust and share. And we have full confidence in sharing your website with our patients over the years. For those 10 years, we were in the medical program and now with our new audience. And so... Really appreciate what you and your team have done there, so thank you. It's good to hear. Appreciate it. Yeah. So how did it actually start? <laughs> you know, because you, you're a journalist by trade. Um, what originally got you interested in this topic and to start this, this nonprofit? It was actually through my journalism, starting to write about medical cannabis. It led to an interest in, well, what is it all about? How does it work? And is it real in terms of a scientific basis? And I began to attend... Uh, conferences of the International Cannabinoid Research Society, ICRS, which really is a preeminent organization for researchers, serious researchers in this field. And that's where I first learned about CBD. Uh, and what I was hearing, and we're talking about now uh, 2008, 2009 is when I started going to those conferences. CBD wasn't well known at that point. It wasn't accessible generally to, to uh, medical patients or otherwise. But what I heard at these conferences was absolutely astonishing. And I came away from that thing. Gee, it's kind of a pity that in California, the medical cannabis community doesn't have access to this thing called CBD. Then lo and behold, a couple of years later, when analytic labs first emerged in California, which is where we're based, um, to service the emerging medical cannabis industry, they began to test the strains and uh, put a value in terms of, generally it was for how much THC was in a particular varietal. And once in a blue moon, it would, it would pop up something for CBD as well. And we were in touch with these labs early on, and we, we told them to look for anything with CBD in it. And that's how we first became aware that there were a few growers who were inadvertently were growing what we called CBD-rich cannabis. Uh, hmm. And that was a very exciting development because we realized that we would be able to find out what it would do for people if they were taking uh, cannabis that was CBD-rich. Would it be anything like we heard at the ICRS conferences? But there, they were mainly working with CBD as an isolate. 
and giving it to animals. So we're talking about now people taking full spectrum cannabis. Right. So it basically launched kind of an experiment, introduced it into the, physically introduced it to the medical cannabis community, first in Northern California and throughout the state. We cloned out uh, certain strains that we had discovered and we gave them away for free to see what would happen. Would, would it catch on? And lo and behold, it did. Yeah, you know, when I was kind of reviewing uh, your new website and kind of going back and listening to interviews that you've had over the years, I don't know why I had lost track of that, your your origin story there in terms of uh, actually supplying the medical program in California with clones and things like that. I don't know how I missed that, you know? So, so you were actually, you were working with growers in California to create those genetics or you had a team doing it yourself? What did that look like? I mean, basically, we were in touch with a very, very small number of analytical labs that were operating in the space at the time. And they knew we were particularly interested in CBD-rich strains, um, which there were very, very few uh, at the time circulating. Um, and we, we, we assumed that they didn't exist, actually. But, right. Uh, when we learned of a particular strain of varietal, chemovar, whatever, however you want to call it, we would contact the grower and tell the grower that we think they had something quite of interest. Uh, and the growers were interesting reactions. <laughs> they would say, gee, you know, that's interesting to hear about this CBD because I was kind of concerned uh, that this wouldn't fly within, uh, among consumers because it didn't get me as high as usual. Right, uh, but it sure was great for my back pain, you know, better than anything else. So that was the kind of responses we were getting, and when we did get, there were there were a few growers who allowed us access to the clones, and then we cloned these things out, and gave them away. Uh, wow! Because you know, in the beginning, no one knew about this stuff, and the only way to get interest was to make it available and mm. to see what would happen. So it really was like a grassroots experiment. Yeah, and indeed, there, there was a you know a very good response, particularly among patients early going. Now we're talking 2010, yeah. 2011, very early on. Yeah, you know I think that a lot of people kind of think that the the introduction of CBD and the awareness of it started in Colorado, you know, with the Charlotte Fiki story. But it started in California, and those genetics, I'm assuming, then kind of made their way <laughs> into Colorado, or did they? just, um, you know, through the same kind of like selective breeding or just hybridization, if it was uh, cannabis that was growing outside that just naturally started to have CBD show up in the genetics? I think in the beginning, certain growers just stumbled into it, not knowing what they were looking for, or they were not necessarily looking for CBD. Again, they were looking for things that would do well in the market. And that, that requires something that got you really high, you know. Yeah. THC rich, no complaints about those strains. Right, um, but uh, CBD brings something else to the table. Uh, yes, the, the Charlotte Figgy's family heard about CBD through what was happening in California. Hmm. We personally brought seeds to Colorado. I don't say that the Charlotte's Web strain came from came from California. I actually think it originated in Spain. Hmm. Um, but there was, you know, at the very beginning, it was. Uh, Really, uh, people were just feeling the way around and, and um, uh, kind of suspicious of this because it, it ran against the grain of what cannabis in the medical community was basically all about at that time, which was getting high and getting better. And they went together. Right. And something that didn't get you high, it was viewed by dispensaries as uh, a lower quality product, right? <laughs> well, they were suspicious and, and yeah. concerned because that means they would have to take something off the shelf 
that was selling that got people high and put something on there that uh, back on the shelf that didn't get people as high or perhaps not high at all. Right. And from a business point of view, they didn't know if that was a wise idea. So the, the uptake of this in the beginning was slow. There were a handful of dispensaries that were, maybe you might say, forward thinking or mm-hmm. experimental. Uh, they were willing to give it a go. But what's interesting is every single dispensary early on that we had dealings with, I'm talking about before CBD became a household name after the CNN special in the summer of 2013, most of the dispensaries, I should say all of them, ran into trouble with the government, that they were cracking down. And um, unfortunately, uh, that really put a damper on the whole scene. You have to think back in that time of 2010. It was a very rough period. That's when we started at Project CBD in 2010. A lot of pressure from the federal government, a lot of pressure from state and local law enforcement, even in California. Obama was president at that time, but, you know, he he was not exactly a profile of courage on this issue early on. Hmm. Uh, Part of it had to do with that, you know, it was well known he was a weed smoker as a teenager. And I think he kind of bent in the other direction just to show he he would play with the you know, with the law enforcement boys and do what they yes, wanted initially. So totally. when we learned about CBD and we when it was rediscovered in Northern California, it became an actual option for people. We thought this could be really key to liberating cannabis from the drug abuse paradigm, because here's here was a compound that was not intoxicating, that had, at least according to the scientific community, an uh, amazing array of uh, potential medical benefits. And our thought was, well, how would the drug czar's office respond to this? What what would they do? What would be, how could they justify cracking down on CBD-rich cannabis? And we're talking about marijuana cannabis, not right now. Right, right. Um, it was more than uh, 0.3% THC in these strains that we discovered early on. And we thought this really could pry open, uh, it could really benefit a community that was under siege. And I think that that did happen uh, to a great extent, although things haven't quite played out as we anticipated. But certainly, it did uh, provide um, ammunition, if you will, for those who were under attack by prohibitionists claiming that medical cannabis was just a ruse for people who wanted to get high. All of a sudden, here's CBD. Well, where's the ruse now? It's not about getting high. Right. Uh, And there was, uh, I I do think it had a catalytic impact on the evolution of uh, medical cannabis and cannabis in general. Oh, it definitely has. I mean, we... We saw that here in the Vermont medical program that uh, when we when it started here, uh, the first dispensaries opened in 2013, the medical community was not on board with THC cannabis at all. Very few would talk to their patients about it or sign their papers so that they could have access to the program. So it was a slow build of education with them to get to build trust. But when CBD came along, those same doctors had no problem sending their patients to try CBD first, you know, at a a CBD store instead of a dispensary. And so it definitely was the kind of gateway to bring the medical professionals on board with with cannabis. I think we anticipated that, that that there would be a lot of interest beyond the already existing medical cannabis community, uh, whether in California or elsewhere, that this would really open up things to a great extent. and, And a lot of people would be interested because there was already a buzz about cannabis as as a medically powerful herb. Um, of course. Not everybody necessarily wanted to try it, but it was already in the zeitgeist of, of the culture. Uh, when CBD came along, it really amped everything up uh, to yeah. a much greater, greater degree. I think that it, it accentuated a pro-cannabis cultural shift that was already underway in the United States and in other parts of the world, but it made it stronger, bigger, faster. 
Yeah. And so you started by kind of being activists and helping spread the genetics and the awareness of the importance of these CBD genetics into the medical program. But how did you then transition into an educational-based website (laughs) and resource for so many people? Well, it was always partly that as well. You know, the idea is that we we had the um, access to the hardware, the the, the, um, the clones, as it were, the, the seeds. But now, but we would pl- provide the software to explain how to use it or yeah. what it was all about. So the the educational component was always with our efforts from day one. It just there was there's nothing to educate unless people are actually taking it. All right. Uh, that's why we got into promoting the the actual plants themselves. And I, I want to emphasize, we did not make money from this. That wasn't the idea. We right. didn't charge for clones. We didn't charge for plants. Um, it was all done in an effort to see what would happen, hopefully That's to awesome. help the community that was under siege. Yeah, well, it definitely did. And so when you say we, how many people were involved at the beginning of Project CBD? It's, it's always been a small group, Project CBD. Initially, there were three folks. It was Fred Gardner from O'Shaughnessy's and Sarah Russo as well. Hmm. Um, and we've always had a kind of a lean, mean operation, never a big budget, uh, just did what we could do uh, when we could do it. And we tried to just give it a little push. We, we saw an opening. We thought it could have a big result. I compared it at the time to uh, like an acupuncturist putting a needle in a person and, and, and turning that needle. But we were doing it for the whole society. And then the needle was CBD, and we were going to see what energies it would would unleash. There was also others outside of our small circle at Project CBD early on who were interested, people like Dale Geringer, uh, the head of California Normal. Uh, mm-hmm. There were some of the people from the different labs. And we had a small circle where we would get together every so often. But there was this really in the beginning of all this. I had a sense this could be really big, yeah. uh, but no one knew for sure at the time. Yeah. Wow. Well, you have a, a great following now. Um, We've talked about how uh, you've got really good engagement on your website and a really engaged audience through your your emails, too. And so you just actually did a whole redesign of this website, and you're working with the folks behind Gondrepreneur. So how how did that come together? And by the way, I think the website looks really great. (laughs) I mean, I like the website before. It's always been just a wealth of information. I mean, I think one of the things that I love about it so much is that you just <laughs> you just go into every medical condition that could possibly benefit from cannabinoid therapy. You've branched off into psychedelics too, which is really interesting. Um, and that's part of the whole earth medicine area. And you have all of the links <laughs> to the the research to back up the stuff that you're doing. So you go in there and you can just kind of go all over the place to dive deep into one little topic, which is great. And I think now with the redesign, it's just easier to navigate. <laughs> uh, I think they've done a really good job with that. So... That was the point to make it easier because our website had been compared to an overgrown garden, beautiful garden, lots of amazing things in it. (laughs) Yes, diverse. It would be difficult for someone to navigate from get to place to place if they were really looking for things. And a Ganjapreneur did a great job. They have a a creative section called Blue Dream within Ganjapreneur. They reached out to us. Initially, they were interested in reproducing some of our content, some of our articles. Mm -hmm. You know, we just got to talking and found out that we're actually simpatico and uh, many levels, and we shared uh, uh, similar perceptions about the 
the industry and its challenges and difficulties and potential. Then we formed a partnership, basically. And I think we're just at the beginning of this. They did a great yeah. job on the website. It took a long time for this to come together. But I think we're, uh, well, we're hopefully we'll have a real strong future with them because we've always been strong on writing and yeah. analysis and research and so forth. We've never been good on web design and how you get a bigger audience for that. And uh, that's what Gondrepreneur is really good at. And and I think it bodes well for the future of Project CBD. But ultimately, our future depends on what's happening in, in the cannabis world, in the CBD world. And we yeah. always saw CBD as part of the cannabis, not as a separate thing. You know, And it was part of the medical cannabis experience initially, not as part of hemp. Um, and that's where I think its future, best future lies. Yeah. And so, I mean, what are... What are you paying attention to right now? You know, what are what are the interesting areas that are happening in this space that are keeping you engaged and kind of the stories that Project CBD is following? You know, it's such a vast space. There's so many things. You mentioned psychedelics and people might be scratching their head and wondering, well, what does that have to do with CBD? You know, CBD yeah. is like unpsychedelic. It turns out that CBD and LSD and, and mushroom and uh, the active component, all bind to the same serotonin receptor. So there's a strong connection right there. And they actually do some similar things. They all are induced neuroplasticity, neurogenesis, which is the basis for an antidepressant effect. Hmm. Um, but CBD doesn't you know, cause a trip, obviously, right. where LSD or psilocybin does. So there is a connection there. But I think the name in some ways, Project CBD, is a little bit deceptive because we, we have a much broader focus. And than just CBD per se, or even just cannabinoids per se. We're interested in herbal medicine in general. What we're particularly interested in now, and I should point out that in terms of research going on in the scientific community, there's so much happening now, even clinically, finally, there's actually hundreds of clinical trials underway wow. uh, involving CBD. And that, that's, that's a change. Uh, that, that, uh, that's a big positive step for a long time in terms of the scientific work. Yeah, we've had a lot of research on like mice and animals, but not clinical trials with humans. That, that's fine. You know, that's important, but that's limited in terms of what it means for people. Right. Uh, what I'm really interested in now is um, the social dimensions of healing. The uh, Put it as a question, how is it that social stress, whether it's um, microaggressions, racist microaggressions toward people of color or any kind of traumatic experience that's imposed on a person, how does that translate into ill health? It does. We know that. But what's going on there? It turns out that the endocannabinoid system is a key mediator of those kinds of pathological outcomes. Hmm. And that's something that is not getting a lot of look right now in the scientific community. It has to do with epigenetics. Uh, that means from, you know, how things from outside affect the expression of one's genes, uh, whether in a healthy way or an unhealthy way. So that's something we are looking at. We'll do some writing on this. But I think connecting what's happening in the cannabis space with the larger issues in our societies, very, very important. So we're interested in, in regenerative agriculture as it applies to cannabis and what that might mean for agriculture in general, because I mm -hmm. think there's some, a lot of positive things happening in that space, both in the hemp, uh, among hemp and cannabis growers. Yeah, where are you, where are you seeing that primarily in California? And Oregon, on the West Coast? West Coast, all the way from California into um, British Columbia uh, right. in Canada. There, there's some really interesting work going on. And, I mean, you're talking about really great cannabis cultivators here. And they're, and they're using 
the best techniques that actually capture carbon, uh, preserve water, you know, uh, build the soil. Um, that's so important. And, and I think that looking at what's been happening in the cannabis world in this way could provide some clues and helpful direction to um, dealing with you know, the challenges of, of climate change, you know, in, in a larger sense. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah. for example, in California, there, there are some growers that engage in a practice called dry farming, where they barely use any water uh, oh. and they grow fantastic uh, cannabis. Now, if that can be applied on a larger scale, Right. To maybe even to other crops. Well, that would be very, very interesting, you know, Definitely. and very helpful. And we've been, until recently, uh, subject to a major drought in California. So, you know, ears perk up when we hear about research and, and efforts like that, that could be helpful to the, you know, the bigger issues that we face as a society. Definitely. Yeah, it, it does in so many ways, you know, and I, I'm one of those people who believes that we have co-evolved with plants. You know, we're part of nature, you know, so it's not lost on me that cannabis is showing up the way that it's showing up right now because we need it, you know, and it it gives us a lot of different benefits, whether it's dealing with climate change or providing us with fiber and different kinds of fuel and then the, the medical purposes. And I also think it has to do with what you said earlier about mental health, so not just physical health, but mental health. The fact that, that the psychedelics and the cannabis right now could be such powerful tools when used, you know, in the right dose, in the right setting, uh, with the right education to really help people heal with some of the, the trauma and just the stress <laughs> that's going on on our planet right now. I share a similar point of view, and I think uh, there's great potential here. At the same time, the cannabis industry, the psychedelic renaissance, so-called, highlights some of the challenges that we face because, you know, cannabis isn't just about whole plant medicine anymore. It's about isolates. It's big business. It's big production. So there's a real bifurcation uh, yeah. in the uh, cannabis industry, as it were. And I think also we're going to see that. We are already starting to see that within the psychedelic space. So this is open turf that we need to stand strong on and, and advocate for better options here because uh, you're talking about huge amounts of money at play a lot of pressure on businesses to do things a certain way. You look at what's happened in the hemp CBD space, how it's evolved quite unpredictably, in my opinion, into uh, you know basically using a CBD isolate allegedly extracted from hemp as a starter material for all kinds of weird compounds, uh, THCO. And yeah. Yeah. Can you speak to that a little bit more? Because it's actually something that just came up here in Vermont. Um, and you guys have been following this for a while. I shouldn't say you guys, the team at Project CBD. RCCB, our Cannabis Control Board, just passed an emergency rule to regulate hemp-derived and synthetic cannabinoids, particularly the intoxicating ones. And so they're talking about Delta-8 and like THCO and things like that. And they're doing it both to protect the legal market here because these intoxicating hemp-derived or not intoxicating cannabinoids are competing with the legal market. But it's also about public safety uh, because when you start creating these, um, there's the opportunity to kind of create things. One, like they're new compounds that, you know, we don't have any history of our, how our body actually is going to interact with these compounds, especially over long periods of time um, and continued use. But there could be extract issues. Like, what are the issues that you see with these compounds? 
I think the main thing is, is safety in that even if these compounds, which generally don't exist in nature or don't come from nature, they should be emphasized. I mean, if you're buying a, a Delta-8 product, it, it doesn't come from hemp. It's being synthesized in a lab using starter material that came from hemp. So it's, a, you might say it's semi-synthetic or synthetic. You can argue about the terms, but the problem isn't just Delta-8 per se. If it was just Delta-8 THC, I mean, that's going to be a relatively safe compound, just like THC is a safe co- compound. The problem is what you get along with uh, the Delta-8 when you manufacture it that way, when you synthesize it that way, you get all sorts of byproducts. And from what I'm understanding, it's very difficult to synthesize Delta-8 THC compounds or, or any version of THC from CBD without some kind of byproduct or many byproducts in there, which could be really, really funky. So I think that's potentially quite dangerous. Right. But you know, when it comes right down to it, what the Delta-8 phenomenon suggests to me is that there really is a market, if you will, and I generally don't speak in those terms, but there's really an interest among consumers mm-hmm. in, in a, a, like a THC light kind of phenomenon, a, a high with a little bit less of an edge to it. And that's a legitimate consumer interest. But you know, what would you rather have? A product that has a little bit of glop put on it that's called Delta 8 and whatever else is in there. Maybe it's put on some parsley or even some hemp itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so you get a less of a high, you get a, a more moderate high. Why not go for a three to one or four to one CBD to THC type two strain? The type twos are mixtures of both CBD and THC. Won't get you as high, but you'll have all the terpenes in there. You'll have CBD and THC. There's so much more therapeutic value. And some of these type two strains are absolutely exquisite. They've been on sort of, they've been sidelined by the whole CBD phenomenon. But going back to the beginnings from when it first emerged or reemerged in California, back now 13 years ago, 14 years ago, that's what we had. We had the type twos. All the CBD strains that we came across, the CBD rich strains, had significant amounts of THC in it as well. Yeah. Uh, maybe one to one, two to one. And these were really wonderful strains. And maybe some of them are still around. We call them Harlequin, Blue Jay Way, there's Omrita R. There are a few like that. I don't know if they're still circulating. <laughs> but this is what t- CBD is all about. It's not just an isolate. It shouldn't be just treated that way, only that way. It has value as an isolate. But the real value is a part of the whole plant and the whole plant, not just something with a tiny bit of THC, but with mixtures of different ratios of CBD and THC together. I think that's what we're going to swing back to. The pendulum is going to return to that because I think the CBD hemp industry is in big trouble, really. I think the farm bill later this year may well close the loophole for intoxicating hemp and make it illegal on a federal level. And a lot of these CBD businesses are going to go under because they've come to depend on the Delta 8s and so forth like that, as if that's a real CBD product or some kind of a natural product, but it's, it's not really. But they've come to depend on this to stay afloat. So I think there's a lot of businesses are going to go under. Uh, and I think there'll be a space for, um, again, these wonderful type twos, which were a lot like the... Um, the old land race strains, you know, like the Acapulco Gold and other right. things from different cannabis from different parts of the world. They generally had both CBD and THC in it, in, in significant amounts of both. Yeah, uh, and that's what we sort of deviated from as part of the story of CBD. And I think we're going to come back to that because there's a lot of value. Yeah, I think we are too. I'm hopeful that that's where we're headed. I mean, those are the products that I like to see in the market. We actually have one um, being grown by this great 
grower called Mother Flower in Richmond. They have a strain called or a cultivar called Sweet Annie that's basically like one-to-one uh, THC to CBD. And it's just really enjoyable to have it, to consume it as a flower, you know, instead of having it be like put in formulation because the THC extract and a CBD extract were put back together, you know. And again, like I'm not against that, but I just really appreciate it when you can get it as something that the plant grew, you know, naturally and in that form. And kind of going back to something you said earlier, too, I like, you know, your perspective on the fact that, you know, isolates are out there and, you know, they're not necessarily bad. They're, they can be useful in some way. You know, I think there's always a lot of talk in certain communities that says like, oh, the best plant or, you know, the only way to consume is to do whole plant and everything else is not good. And I've always kind of just believed like, hey, let people figure that out themselves, you know, because obviously isolate works. I mean, uh, Epidiolex is, is an isolate, and it works. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, and it's so, approved by the FDA. Yeah. It's gone through all the tests and so forth. I, I think the more variety there is for, uh, for people to access um, CBD, whether it's an isolate or, or uh, a flower uh, or with, with different amounts of THC, the, the more variety, the better. Uh, yes. You know, right now, the regulatory apparatus both the United States and Europe and elsewhere favors isolates. Yeah. Favors that's the way pharmaceuticals work, generally speaking, as an isolated compound. Yeah. Uh, so I say, you know, fine. I, I'm, it's not that we're against that, but we are against it being prioritized in a way that then you get short shrift given to other options. Uh, exactly. That's where I think the, the the problem really is. Yeah, me too. Um, and I think that we've got. I think I've heard you say we've got evidence that um, you know when com- you know when you compare an isolate to a more full spectrum product that it kind of shows that, that they both work, but you need a lot more of the isolate <laughs> to be as effective as a lower dose of a full spectrum. And again, that's for certain individuals <laughs> too. It matters about the product, the dose and the individual. It's going to be different for everybody, but in general, a fuller spectrum product um, is just going to give you more benefit. Yeah. There's solid science showing that, that yeah. um, you need much more CBD as an isolate, a greater amount, compared to CBD as part of a full-spectrum configuration to get similar kind of results. Um, right. And when I say similar, it might not be quite as good uh, with the isolate, but it's good enough for a lot of people. Uh, I don't want to put it down. Yeah, me either. Well, what do you think about you know another trend that's happening that I'm not seeing a lot of talk yet in the cannabis space, um, but there's a lot of talk everywhere else, is with AI and how artificial intelligence might affect how people learn about cannabis, how they navigate products. Maybe, you know, obviously I think it would be helpful for businesses, but is Project CBD kind of looking at the intersection of cannabis and research and AI, or, you know, can it be possibly a, a tool in healthcare? You know, I, I don't know. We're, I, we haven't paying too much attention, really. Uh, I, th- there is a, a a medical platform. It's called Healy. Uh, I'm not here to plug it, but it's all based on AI. You know what you should be doing, what kind of healing modality, and it's the idea. It's all all healing is based on vibrations, and if so, you don't need to go to an acupuncturist. You can just vibrate according to what the acupuncturist would be doing. And mm-hmm. I just don't buy it. Right. I, I, to me, going to an acupuncturist, as I do uh, occasionally, going to an expert in traditional Chinese medicine who's been studying this stuff for decades, I would much rather have that person take my pulse and look at my tongue and make a prescription for herbs than 
based on AI. I just don't think you can duplicate yeah. uh, the kind of wisdom uh, that's out there. So I, I, you know, we'll see how it plays out. People are talking about the dangers of AI and so forth. I don't know. I, I, in some ways, I'm trying not to pay too much attention to it. Yeah. I, I think that um, I don't think anything can substitute for the actual human natural experience. Yes. Yeah. Using cannabis, consuming it. What will it mean? You can <laughs> with AI, and and what are the? It can only be as good as what how it's programmed. So exactly. It's, I, I just yes. I just don't know. I, I it's one of these things that part of it is we're in such desperate shape overall as people as in a society in the world. You know, we're we're always looking for some kind of salvation, whether it's going to be one psychedelic trip that's going to put us you know into heaven or. Now it's going to be AI. It's going to do all these great things or maybe all these horrible things. Who knows? I just think we need to keep our feet on the ground and, and, and uh, uh, you know, not wait for the Messiah to come. And, yes. and I think someone, some, some ways people are looking at AI as, you know, the next great, uh, next great coming. You know, so Yes. <laughs> Either good or bad. <laughs> uh, yeah. Either way. Huh. I don't think ch- technology is going to save us. Let's put it that way. Oh, yeah. It's a tool. It depends on how we use it, right? It all, yeah. it's all comes Unfortunately, down to it's also a tool that affects how we use it, too. You know, yes. It kind of reverberates back, but who knows? We'll, yeah. we'll see. We'll too see. early to tell on that. I was good at seeing the possibility of, of, of CBD and kind of calling it early on. I'm not so good about a, AI, <laughs> uh, any of that stuff. Can't be good at everything. Um, <laughs> so, um, oh, oh, Actually, AI could be good at everything, I've heard. depends on how you prompt it um cool well before we say goodbye um i was wondering if you would kind of join in this conversation that we've been having with um, both cannabis growers and producers here in vermont um you know one of the the topics here is about craft. You know, craft is very important to Vermont. I think the state of Vermont has this brand about it as a whole that uh, great craft products come out of the state. And so there's a lot of conversation about what craft cannabis means. Um, and we've asked people to kind of just submit, you know, what their definition of craft is. And I was curious to know what yours is. You know, what is craft cannabis to you? It's a very interesting question. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hesitant to define it per se, but I, I think I can talk about it in terms of certain qualities. Yeah, and, and please do. It's got to be organically grown, hopefully regeneratively grown, which is not exactly the same. I mean, regenerative is, well, regenerative has to be organic, but it's not the other way around. Right. Um, uh, small scale, locally grown, mom and pop. That's what I think. You know, when, when we talk about craft cannabis, well, what would be the opposite? What would be the opposite, unfortunately, is what is in a lot of dispensaries around the country today. It's what the breeder DJ Schultz referred to as bland potency. You get a lot of high THC cannabis in dispensaries uh, where the higher the THC is seen as the better, and I just don't see cannabis that way. And That's not how craft cannabis would roll. A lot of it would have to do with terpenes and the full bouquet of uh, components in the plant. Craft cannabis, it's start to finish. You know, it's before it's actually the seed is put in the ground till, till long after it's used. It, it's a really important area. And I see artisanal craft cannabis as being really the alternative to this strong move toward isolate and distillate within the cannabis industry that is being actively pushed by uh, regulators. Uh, in, in Europe, for example, CBD 
it's not even clear you're going to be able to get CBD from a plant. It might have to all be made in a laboratory, uh, which is possible to oh do. Oh, my goodness. Fermented, you know. That's, that's the uh, uh, opposite of, right. of craft cannabis. Definitely. And how is craft cannabis doing in California? By your, def- by your <sighs> definition there. <laughs> well, in California, it's a, the, the industry is really going through tough times. And the growers of craft cannabis, if they've gone for a license and doing it, quote unquote, through the licit market, are probably also doing some on the illicit side because you almost have to to survive. Because of the taxes and the cost of regulation. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, so, it's such a mess. I can give you one figure in California. Right? The, the amount of accounts receivable due for when producers uh, make the product and then just you know, have it distributed to different dispensaries and so forth. You know, after two months, you have an account receivable that's due. Uh, the unpaid account receivable, you would be shocked over $750 million in California right now. Wow. Uh, I will maybe say that's a month ago. It's probably higher where, where it's just people aren't paying their bills and then the others can't pay their bills. And it's a, a industry, I don't want to sound overly alarmist, but it, it is really going through a lot of problems. And uh, if, to the extent that craft is happening, it's the legacy growers generally who are up against tough competition from the uh, you know, there's sort of these big monster grows, which aren't supposed to exist according to the regulations, but uh, the way it's panned out, um, they do exist. And, and it's um, really brought the price down dramatically, which, which hurts the smaller farmers. So craft farmers are, are uh, going through tougher times, uh, just mm. as everybody is. But Yeah. Do you uh, see light at really the end hard. of the tunnel at all? There's going to be a big fallout, I think. A, lo- a lot of people who you know, will return to the illicit market which is much bigger, by the way, than the, than the you know, license market, market yeah. in California. It's yeah, like eight, sure. eight times the size or something. It's, uh, I mean, California is a special case because it's California. You know, you, you know, when we talk about the cannabis industry in California, 20 years ago was a multi-billion dollar industry in, right. in California. And when it wasn't legal at all. So each state is different, but certainly the Western producer states, I know there's interest in uh, preparing for interstate commerce and so forth. Yeah, I was going to ask uh, you about, about that. that. Will that help, you think? I mean, who knows what that would look like, right? Yeah, I think it's a matter of timing. And right now, I'd say be really careful what you wish for uh, in those situations. Because who's, who would benefit if, if all of a sudden this became possible? You know, it's the big MSOs, the multi-state operators. Right. They're in a position to take most advantage. And the, and the quality of their product is not as good uh, right. as craft growers. Right. But, you know, the, they've got the ways and means. These are billion-dollar companies, some of these things. So you open it up for this right away. And I don't know. You know, I think... In theory, it's really an important, good idea. It's the direction we need to move. But in practice, it's a, a matter of when. I yeah, think. yeah. Well, until then, we gotta buy local, <laughs> buy buy yes. from your <laughs> your small local farmer uh, to help them get a leg up. Mm-hmm. All right, Martin. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, and I appreciate you spending some time talking with us today and bringing us up to speed on what's happening at Project CBD. And so best of luck with your continued growth um, with this new relationship with the entrepreneur, and we'll be paying attention. Thank you very much. Happy to be with you. Great. Thanks.
that'll do it for this episode. Thanks go out to my creative crew at High Fidelity, Olaf Willoughby and Shane Lynn, and to the team at Syntax in Motion for producing this show. A special shout out to Will Davis, my sound engineer. Thanks to you for listening to us today. If you enjoy what you heard, subscribe on our website, hi5vt.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Better yet, like, share, rate, or leave a comment. You can request topics or interviews for our show by emailing us at bewell at hi5vt.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until then, be well and have fun out there.